Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Welcome back, listeners. Today, we're talking with Brand Hansen about his book, The Men We Need, God's Purpose for the Manly Man, the Avid Indoorsman, or Any Man Willing to Show Up. Folks, the truth is millions of men lack a real vision for their lives, and we're hurting as a society as a result. In his book, Brand explains what men are made to be and why it matters. Brand is an author, a podcaster, and a nationally syndicated radio host. His podcast, The Brant and Sherry Oddcast, has been downloaded more than 10 million times. If you are a guy or you know a guy who's struggling to find his purpose, this podcast is for you. Join me now for my conversation with Brand Hansen. Brand, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. I saw, did you have James Patterson on the last one? I did. We had James Patterson on. So the vertical drop in book sales from one podcast to the next is steep here. That That is not going to be the case after this podcast. <laughs> Great. No, nope. okay. soaring, yeah. soaring. The book sales are soaring up. <laughs> awesome. Brad, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, you've written a number of books. The one we're going to talk about is your newest. Uh, the Men We Need is the name of the book. God's Purpose for the Manly Man, the Avid Endorsement, or Any Man Willing to Show Up. Uh, first things first, Brant, uh, the, the name of the book is The Men We Need. Should the women who are listening to the podcast, you know, get off here? There's nothing here for them? No, I, I think they're going to love this. Seriously. Like the reactions that I've gotten doing interviews, it's usually the women that lean in and are like, yes, and I need the men in my life to understand this. So I think I want you to listen because I think they'll be the ones actually wanting to buy this book and like airdrop them over their <laughs> neighborhood. You're saying this book's going to end up in a lot of male uh, husband Christmas stockings this year. I I think so. I think it should. And um, but I'm the guy who wrote the book. But I think there's this desperate need. Like guys don't. We have deconstructed masculinity, and some of that needed to be done for sure. It's been very helpful. But what's the construction? Like, can we can people articulate what is good at the deepest level about masculinity? Because there is something beautiful about it, and wonderful, and life giving, and it helps people flourish, but most people can't articulate what it is. So I was just trying to take a shot with this book of saying, this is it. And it's not about trucks or tattoos or being a great hunter. It's like, I'm, I'm none of those things. And I play the accordion. I play the flute. I'm not kidding. I was the president of the Illinois Student Librarians Association. So <laughs> I don't want to brag or anything, but I'm more of the nerd type. But I think there's something deep, regardless of whether you're an accounting professor or a mechanic or whatever there's something deeply good about a masculinity that i'm trying to describe in this book that i think even young guys like little kids could even get their heads around so that that's that's the effort here yeah i i love this story and you retell it in the book about your your producer you know observing and saying that you know when she witnessed you with your 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 kids and your your wife that they just had a peace and a calm about them and that you, you know she felt like despite the fact uh, that you might be an avid indoorsman or a guy who plays the flute that you were exactly the kind of guy to sort of tell the story about this is these are the men we need you know this is the, this is masculinity so i mean does this kind of did you ever imagine that you'd be writing a book about you know the men we need 
No, no way. Um, and honestly, honestly, I do it from the standpoint of being like, I'm not that guy. Like I'm not a Navy SEAL and whatnot, but I respect all of that. It's just not me. But the wild thing is, and this is, this is where I think women will be like, yeah, you're right. If you don't make your, let's say you're married. If you don't make your wife feel secure, she's not going to be attracted to you. Like you, you could be ripped. You could be jacked. You could be, you know, men's fitness cover model. You could be a Navy SEAL. You could have all the awesome stuff. Like, but if she doesn't feel secure around you, you're in trouble. Yeah. So conversely, you may not be all of those things, but if you exude the security where people around you can flourish, like you, you provide that space and you defend that space, you protect it, but you also build people up like your wife or the, your kids, like the people around you, it, it, your wife will find you attractive. Even if you have a, a beer belly or something like it's not, it, there's something deeply good about what I call a keeper of the garden, which is Adam's original job, in the, you know, in the Hebrew scriptures, that's, yeah. there's something deeply good about being that, that keeper of the garden. Uh, by the way, and you do it now, but, uh, you know, the, the book is riddled with humor um, that really, I think, disarms the reader and, and makes you feel comfortable regardless of kind of how you how you view yourself or your role in the family. You know, it's interesting. You talk a lot about kind of the times we're living in. I mean, what what is it about this topic that you felt like was worth you writing a book about and leaning into uh, to men to sort of lay out for them a construction of what masculinity is? Yeah, I think it's, again, it's the, it's the deconstructive impulse that we have where we can go, what, we know what toxic masculinity is. Actually, I'd say there's a couple <laughs> different kinds of toxic. There's, yeah. a, there's a domineering toxic and th that we're all familiar with, which is absolutely should be, should be eliminated. But there's also this passive toxic um, that, that can undermine marriages, for instance. Uh, but all that said, it's like, okay, we know what toxic is. So what's the, what's the thing we're shooting for? If you don't know what you're shooting for, if you can't articulate it to like a seven-year-old boy or a 15-year-old or a 55-year-old, then we, we're kind of lost at sea. We don't know what the, what the big picture is. So I use the analogy of like a puzzle. We've got these puzzle pieces of shards of masculinity like we think that it is. We're not sure, but we, we need the box top to be able to look at it and go, oh, that's who I'm supposed to be. The wild thing is, I sort of did this. I didn't even do it on purpose, but with my son, we have a boy and a girl. And when they were little, I think they were nine and six at the time. My son's name justice, but he was picking on Julia, my daughter. And I heard her going justice, you know, and <laughs> I went back to their bedroom or whatever, the back rooms are like, what is going on? And, uh, I told justice, like justice, you're supposed to be her protector. You know that that's your role, right? you're betraying your role. You're actually the one that needs, she needs to be protected against. Do you understand what you're doing? And I don't think I, I could be wrong, but honestly, I don't think I ever had that problem again. Yeah. Cause he, he got it. Like even young, even young kids can go, Oh, wait a second. I'm supposed to make people secure around me, not threaten them. And so as I'm actually articulating this kind of masculinity, it's interesting because a lot of women who are maybe more feminist, for instance, actually resonate with it because they're like, wait a second, if guys were like this, we wouldn't need a Me Too movement. Like if, if we understood my neighborhood should be safer because I'm here.
I think your point on the kids in particular, you know, as a here you are as a father saying that to your son, I think we sort of assume that they're not going to get it a lot of the time and therefore we don't bother to teach it. And then here you have you have this like teaching moment where you're saying it and he he does get it and he and it does it does change his behavior. You you talk a little bit about this, but you know, you're talking about this this version of masculinity and how we view masculinity as a country has changed in popular culture over the years. I mean, you go back to like the 50s and 60s and you got John Wayne as a masculine figure. And, and that now sort right. of fast forward to today. And I feel like there's been this radical shift where, you know, my kids are watching TV and it feels it feels like every cartoon, every kid's show, you know, the male is sort of an idiot, you know, always making mistakes, right. and, you know, not able to kind of help the group. The group has to kind of sort of carry the, the person across the adventure finish line, so to speak. You know, how, how does that play into your whole in your whole narrative about you know looking at what kind of men we need and, and the interaction between you know what's going on in our families and popular culture well it really diminishes the culture in general uh, because let's say okay so i'm 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 painting this picture for guys and for me that we're supposed to be keepers of our garden like adam the job he is given um and that means that means protecting it means cultivating it means allowing the vulnerable to flourish because we're there, like there's, there's species that, that can't thrive in the wild, but in a garden, they can bloom and become beautiful. Like that's my role. I feel like, so my sphere of influence is my garden. So when people have an understanding of that, when guys do, it's not just about, it's not just about taciturnly protecting in case somebody comes in the door. It's about making sure that my wife flourishes, her talents are cultivated to the max. Same thing with the kids around me. It means me protecting the vulnerable in life. The wild thing about that is everybody benefits from it. If I'm that way, everybody benefits. So if we're going to diminish this or not articulate what masculinity really is to the next generation or even to ourselves, all of our culture suffers. And I think we see that. And I think women feel the pressure of having to fill all of these gaps by themselves because guys have checked out or they don't understand they, they just, they check into technology or pornography or video games or whatever. And actually, I'm trying to tell guys, we need you out here. You actually do have a mission in life. And when guys get that vision, we're all better off. So I think, I think all of those characters leave us all impoverished, honestly, our whole culture suffers. I love the word picture. Uh, you mentioned it, you know, the, the, being the keeper of the garden in part because you know, gardens are complex places that need constant tending and weeding. Uh, but also, you you hearken it back to, of course, Adam and Eve in the Bible, and the garden was a dangerous place. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, they got kicked out of the garden because they didn't sort of tend to it the way that they were supposed to. They didn't follow the one rule that God had given them. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's interesting that you you sort of paint that picture for men and as a way to kind of explain to them, you know, hey, this is what masculinity. Is. So as you were sitting down with, let's say, your son, Justice, and, you know, you got you know a couple minutes to say, Justice, this is what masculinity is. This is what it should be. This is how I want you to live up to it. What would you tell him? Protect the vulnerable. Let them thrive. That's why you're here. Now, it, what, you know what's interesting? And I, I think is I'm so proud of him. I can't help it. I have to be I have to tell you this. He's like me. I'm actually on the autism spectrum. I'm in, I'm you know, I'm a different kind of guy. Well, so is he. But he so thoroughly understood this message, he wound up going to Berkeley in California, got his degrees in linguistics and Russian literature, became an intel officer, and served in the military for four years, 
brilliantly. So he's a captain. He just got out and now he's at Yale medical school. Uh, cause he's he planning to become a surgeon. He wants to work for this outfit I work with called cure. So these are Christian hospitals that heal kids and give them surgeries that they couldn't ever afford otherwise. So they can walk. But I would take him to these hospitals and we'd go in the ORs and he'd watch that. And it was such a good vision for him. It flipped his switch as somebody, he's obviously a pretty bright guy, but to be able to say, I can, I can be an agent of healing for the, for kids that have no protection otherwise. They're abused. They're left behind because they have some sort of a disability. So I think he got it. But I, um, and I, I think, I think it resonates with the male heart, especially the young male heart to go, you actually have a role. We need you. It's what they think too. And you know, this, the, the ethos and the culture at large is as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, what's it matter? And so guys can go, I'll just check in my technology and disengage. And I'm, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I, I want to tell them, but you are hurting us because we needed you. Like you have actual skills and things that you can contribute and you're in a, in a context no one else is exactly in your context. People could have benefited from you being this keeper of the garden. Absolutely. You could, you could have been, and we needed you out here and we, we miss it. So I'm trying to, and most guys that resonates with, and they're like, you know what? I think you're right. I think I have actual purpose. I, uh, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's regardless of the, the man's age, right? I mean, it, whether it is a, uh, you know, a father who maybe is older, who you call and ask for advice, uh, or it's, you know, little, little boys, uh, little kids, you know, I've got two little boys, uh, six and seven. And I used to tell them on Saturday mornings, you know, do yard work or something and say, all right, boys, it's, you know, time for man work. We have man work today. And they would get super excited. Really what that meant is being outside and, you know, blistering heat, you know, doing something where we get dirty. Um, <laughs> but they loved it. You know, they loved it. There was also ice pops involved, which probably was an incentive. But, but uh, you know, they, they really enjoyed being needed and, and being wanted and be giving a mission. And I think you do a really good job in the book of seeing, of saying men need a mission. You know, that mission is your family, tending to them, lifting them up, having purposeful work or ministry or whatever it is, but have a mission. And it, you can articulate this to your kids. You can tell them like, son, you have a role. We need you to protect the vulnerable. You see somebody getting picked on at school. You see a little, you know, somebody literaler than you. Like what you do not do is pick on the vulnerable ever. Because again, you're being a bit, you're betraying your actual role. Do you understand that? Kids can understand that. It's a beautiful way to, to give that boy a role. And he can start thinking about his life, career, how he's going to treat his wife. Here's the other thing about this. I tell guys, look, ask women. Every, every possible survey where they're like, what's the sexiest, hottest occupation that a man can have? It's always firefighter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why? I mean, it's not the reflective pants. And I, I joke, like <laughs> I've tried that. It's not the, it, but, but it's, it's that it's the role that that person inhabits of being a defender and somebody who will protect the vulnerable. When I was in college, I saw the same poster in every girl's room around campus. It was, it's still the number one selling poster in the history of posters. And it's of a man holding a baby. It's the same photo and it's called L'Enfant. It's a French photo. But I asked the girls, like, why is this guy so hot? I mean, there's a million good looking guys. Like, why is this poster? It's like, it's not the guy. It's the way the baby's looking at him. Mm. 
the baby is making eye contact. Like you're going to take care of me, right? Like I can trust you, right? I'm vulnerable. And women find it very attractive, which I'm telling guys, this is not why you, why you fill this role of keeper of the garden. It's not why, but it's a good indicator that it's the right role because women are so intuitively brilliant about this. They intuit that this is masculinity at its best. So I think it's very instructive. And for a lot of guys, then the green light comes on as I'm explaining that. Like, I think that's right. I think that's who we're supposed to be. I I love that. And I, I think you do, you know, you talk about uh, toxic, first I want to talk about toxic masculinity, right? Because that's something that that's a lot in culture. And I think you, you know, you've mentioned it before, but, you know, there's certainly the, you know, the, the toxic masculinity that I guess if I had to describe it, which means like, don't be a jerk, right? Like, don't be, right. you know, purposely malicious or mean. But I think also sort of in popular culture, it's just sort of become uh, sort of a bumper sticker to, to push down what I would consider kind of traditional masculinity ideas like protect the vulnerable, you know, look after your family. So how do you, you know, in this culture that we're living in, kind of push back against the idea of, hey, listen, you know, men are not bad. In fact, traditional masculinity bad is a mission because there's a, a problem when the culture says, hey, kind of men are bad, right? They don't feel mission centric. They don't feel mission centered. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the defensiveness against that masculine role has been rooted in us not not filling it. Yeah. So there's there's a it, it, it's like gets a bad reputation because you can you can say to your wife, "Well, look, I'm strong and I'm I'm, I'm good at hunting," but if she won't she won't respect you if you're not a secure man in your own home or make her feel secure. So all of those trappings start to be associated with like fake masculinity. So I think that's part of it. That's how I push back on it. The other thing is, honestly, for women who are jaded or for people who are jaded about, can there even be a positive masculinity? Like if you read my book, are you telling me our world wouldn't be better if guys acted this way? Yeah. Are you honestly saying that this vision for masculinity would leave us all in a worse place or would it help our communities thrive like never before? And would it help children and women? Like, this is the most, I, I'm promoting children and women as a man. This is my role. So that's how I push back on it. I understand. I don't like it. I don't like the misunderstandings. I think some of it's, some of it's just a reaction to traditionalism. But I, I want to show a better way, I guess. Yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, it's interesting when you talk about, you know, this is in part, this is for, for women and for families. You know, we did a, a bill to tackle the fatherlessness crisis in Florida. And it was like the largest effort of any state in America. You know, we invested all kinds of dollars, all kinds of research into realizing that, hey, kids are far less likely to be successful. They're far more likely to struggle uh, if they don't have a present father. And to your point, as we have passed that bill and traveled around and talked about it, the most intense positive reactions that I have received have been from women, have been from mothers, or who have been from women who had an experience where the father was absent from the home. Um, so I, I think that this is something that strikes at the heart of a family. Yes, that is absolutely right. And that's, again, why I honestly, here I am writing a man-to-man book, and I'm getting probably more book sales women just going, I have to have seven of these. <laughs> because they <laughs> I want, need to give them they out as their, gifts. Yeah. They want their sons to have, have a vision of it, like said in a way that they get it. Yeah. But they're fans of it because again, it's, it's, it causes our whole community to thrive when men inhabit this role. And it also helps them understand, like, it's not just like, the, I, I quote a guy in the book 
who said, I realized, you know, I always patted myself on the back going, uh, you know, if somebody came in, barged in our house, I would defend my wife. You know, I would do whatever it took. I'm like, that's cool. But he said, you know what I realized? That doesn't happen very often. Most of the time, the intruder is me. Hmm. Like, it's, it's my words. It's my lack of empathy. It's my unwillingness to help my wife thrive or I can cut people down. Like, I make them feel less secure. So I think most women, when they hear that sort of story and go, wait, that is what I want men to be like, like not just going, I've got a, I got a rifle in case somebody comes in the door. Like, no, no, somebody who makes everyone around them feel secure and not insecure and is for them. Women generally are like, yeah, let's do it. What I like about that too, is you talk about, you know, it could be words of affirmation to a spouse or, you know, pouring into a child. It takes a lot of work, right? I mean, this is not, you know, we step back for a second, like, this is hard. I, I joke with my wife all the time. It's like this parenting thing, this marriage thing. It's it's for real. Um, it's, it's a lot of work. And I say that because you write about, I think, what masculinity isn't uh, and that it's not toxic passivity. So tell us, tell us about that, what it means and, you know, what you were trying to get across with that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the checking out that happens that a lot of guys will succumb to. And it's very frustrating when a woman feels like, ultimately, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's got my back. I think I have to do everything here. I have to, uh, I don't know. It's weird too, because you can track that back to Adam and the, the story of the Eden thing. When I'm talking about, he's given the job specifically of keeper of the garden. That's his job. And then you've got this enemy that's in the garden and Adam does absolutely nothing. And apparently, I always thought when I was reading that, that bit from Genesis, whenever I pictured it, that Adam was like miles away, like naming the animals or something or whatever. <laughs> but if you actually look at the actual text, it sounds like he's right there with Eve when she's being bamboozled. Yeah. And he does nothing. Yeah. In fact, he, 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 sort, of, he sort of blames her, right? It was, the, it was the woman who did it, basically, is what he says totally passive aggressive. He blames God and her in the same sentence. He's like, well, it's the woman you gave me. Like, <laughs> right. so he's, he's, he's passing the blame from himself onto the woman. He's passive and does nothing to protect her. He doesn't fill his role as keeper. And it's interesting because in the text, God comes into the, the garden and he doesn't say, Hey, where are you guys? He says, Adam, where are you? Like I made you to be this, I made you to be the keeper of the garden. You didn't do it. So I do see that reflected a lot in our own, my own, my own default nature. Like, well, I'll just kind of check out and not, not be engaged. And it is hard and it does take energy, but it it also is life giving to actually be engaged instead of just kind of checking out. Absolutely. In my, in my imagination, God walked into the garden. It was like, Adam, I gave you one job, you know, one, one one thing that you're supposed to do. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't do it. And obviously, you know, Adam makes a really bad choice by not doing that. You, you write about choices. You write about decisions and, and six in particular uh, that you feel like, hey, every man is going to be faced with and they're and they're just critical and you sort of break them down. Uh, one of them is uh, to forsake the fake and to cherish the real. And I wanted to spend a couple minutes on that. Tell, tell us why that was one of the important decisions you feel like all men have to make. Well, this is huge, especially for younger guys, but even older guys. Now, I mean, I've grown up with video games. I'm in my 50s. So I love them. The problem with video games isn't that they're evil per se. It's that they're too fun. Like 
So I'm, I'm trying to go, look, I can get a dopamine hit from a video game really quickly because you level up or you get the win if it's a sports game or whatever. It's, and life doesn't work that way. You don't, you don't get as many dopamine hits every day. So there's this desire to check out and just sit and do a game. But I'm trying to tell guys, like, you do not want to look back at age 70 or 80 and go, yeah, all my adventures were fake. Yeah, no doubt. Like, that's not, you do not want that. You don't want that kind of regret. The same thing goes with, with pornography, for instance. Like, it's, it's giving you the dopamine hit, but it's not a real woman. It's not real. It's pixels. And a, in a, in a fake pixel-lated woman is not going to call you out to be a man. Like, a real woman will. It'll be, like, there, there'll be difficulties in the relationship, but it'll make you grow up. We can go now. We can just completely check out of real life and feel like we're having some sort of life that you're not. So that's what I'm starting with. That's like one of my first decisions, like decide now you're going to relish the real and forsake the fake. Cause that, that stuff will leave you lonely and uh, it's surly and lonely. And you'll feel meaningless because you're doing meaningless things. So it is depressing, right? You'll, you'll, you'll feel empty. Absolutely. And you should, because you're doing empty stuff, but that you're not made for. So of course you don't feel right. You know, I, I talk about this a lot, but you know, it's like, you know, tell me if you spend an hour on social media, you know, do you feel better afterwards? Right. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, a, it's like a one-way ticket to feeling bad about either the world, about yourself, about your state of affairs, about your marriage, about your job. I mean, it's all, it's all pretty, you know, pretty terrible. I, I think, you know, one of the reasons I want to focus on that decision is because I think so much of what's happening in the world right now, particularly for our young people, because while, you know, things like video games and pornography are certainly a challenge for a lot of folks, you know, our kids have got everything coming at them. They got the video games, they got the social media, they got the Instagram, they got the TikTok. And, you know, there, there's, it's such a difficult thing to, to know the difference between the, the, the real uh, and the fake. And you've got the extreme examples of people who are literally marrying anime characters, you know, in parts of, you know, in parts of Japan. So I guess, you know, giving advice to, let's say dads, for example, right? Because I think every dad sees their kid and, you know, whether they're playing video games or they're, they're starting to go down a path of being invested in the fake. What would you say to the fathers? Hey, this is what you need to explain to the kids that they're missing out on. That's the you know, wild adventures, you know, cool stuff. Well, you need to you need to have that kind of time. You need to make decisions in life that allow you the time to be able to hang with them and model it, like model having a a, a longer attention span, like being outside doing things. Here's another thing. This is a very hard thing for some people to hear, but I, as I say this, I want people to go instead of being defensive, just think maybe there's something to it, and it's not too late to do something. And that is this: I heard one child psychologist asked the question, he was asked, when should I get my kids a smartphone? And his answer was, whenever you want their childhood to end. Yeah. And I think that's very accurate. And we are seeing, you can, you can chart suicide rates, depression rates and whatnot from, for adolescents and pre-adolescents. And the, it, they are on a steep climb since the advent of the, of the smartphone. Like it, it, it maps perfectly onto 2005 or six or whenever that was like kids feel depressed when they're doing this stuff, they, but they're not going to stop themselves. They actually need parents to go enough. Here's our limits. Here's what we're not going to do. Here's how we're going to make it happen. So I just would want to come alongside the, the dad in that case, if he's making those sorts of rules 
and say, way to go, man. Much respect. Admire you because nobody else is going to do that for those kids. I, I totally agree. I've got a, a good buddy of mine and he's got three kids. We have two and, and we have sort of a pact. You know, it's an accountability partner of, okay, the kids are all young. Regardless, when they become teenagers, like we're going to, we're not going to do the smartphone thing. We're going to jump off the cliff together. We're going to fight back. And, yeah. and, and part of that is like, and the reason for the pact, right, is because it's the challenge is real. Like I'm sensitive to, to parents who've got kids who are adolescent, they're teenagers or in high school. Like to, to, to those kids, that is someone's whole world. That is their whole social circle exists inside the confines of that phone. It is. And it's, and I think because it's tough to do it by yourself. So I like that you're banding together with this friend because the kids themselves are like, well, everybody else has got one. It would be really nice if at the school level, almost all parents know this is not a healthy thing, but at, at the school level, they said, Hey, the parents here, we're not, we're not actually going to let our kids have smartphones. Like then they can't say everybody's got one and the parents have the support of each other. I, I, I think the time is ripe for something like that. I know that's a little bit of a digression, but uh, that, that gives support to the parents and it helps the kids deal with it. Yeah. You know, and I, I actually look, I, I don't think it is a digression, right? I, I think one of the great things you talk about, and, uh, you know, we're talking about men, fathers, as you said, you know, one piece of advice you'd give your son is protect the vulnerable, right? And here we are, all, our kids are super vulnerable. <laughs> They're super vulnerable. And, it, and it's not just, hey, protect the vulnerable, right? When you know, someone is, you know, on the street, and they need our help, but also but hopefully preventing, you know, preventing the, 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 the problem from happening with our children. And, and I think when you talk about masculinity, that's, that should be one of our missions, right? Right. And the goal is, it's, the goal is for them to thrive and flourish again. Like, this, like they are vulnerable and there is a wilderness out there that's out to get them, whether it's just rampant consumerism or the worst kind of stuff that's going to get into a kid's head. It's, it's awful the stuff that they are now seeing and are subjected to. We all know that. So I want them to not be stifled in their lives. I want them to have a full life and not develop addictions and things and darkness and things that I know will make them depressed. Um, so that's just, that's a part of life. And again, once you, once you perceive of your role as a man, like this is my role, then these decisions start to become a little more obvious, I think. I, I'm curious because, you know, one thing, Brand, is like, you know, I'm going to try to use some of the things in your book as tools with, you know, with my myself, my boys. But I'm also cognizant, we talked earlier about popular culture and content. You know, we have all this content coming at our kids, whether that's, you know, shows or, or social media. And I'm with you on the crackdown on the social media. We, we, we are super curators on anything they ever watch. But I think it's a real challenge for parents who are raising young men. Um, when it comes to content, because I think the content does not reinforce what you're talking about in in your book. So, so how do you how do you get around that when it's just a constant stream? Gosh, that's a great question. I, I'm willing to say I don't know. Um, I have religious convictions. I'm, I'm coming from that as, as somebody who's a, a believer that God loves my kids even more than I do. I have to ask him for help and wisdom. The other thing is, again, that willingness to draw a line on media intake, however unpopular it is. You get one shot with these kids. And so I know the tendency is to just go, you know what? Okay, you can have a computer in your room, whatever. You know, you're a 16-year-old boy. What do you think he's doing, honestly? Yeah, nothing good. It's not healthy. It's not fair to him, honestly. 
It's not fair. There's too, it's too difficult. This is a, I feel for young guys. I feel for us adult males. Like no other generation of men have had to deal with what's available at, at the touch of a finger. Like no one has ever had that. You've always grown up knowing who you are. You'd be in a village or you're in a city. You know who your people are. They know who you are. Your dad's a cobbler. His dad was a cobbler. I guess I'll be a cobbler. Like, <laughs> right. you know, it's, you knew, or, or we're needed to defend our village or I'm needed on the farm. I'm needed that like, but guys now have no clue. So we have to, we have to buttress that with them and talk with them about it. Cause the culture is not going to do it. So we have to be proactive about it. So that's, again, now we're just getting back to my motive to actually write this thing so that at least some people will stumble across and go, oh, I get it. This is why I'm, I'm actually here to do this. And once, once they have a vision for it, then we can go from there. Absolutely. Well, listen, Brant, you, you provide a great tool. Uh, for men to not only understand their role, their role in their families, how they can pour into their kids, how we can raise up, you know, a culture of young men who understand what masculinity is, who understand the mission drive behind protecting the vulnerable. I'd encourage anybody listening to pick up a copy of The Men We Need to read it, uh, to buy six or seven copies. I'm sure there's people who need it for their stockings for Christmas because uh, there's really some great lessons in there. Brand, I really appreciate you uh, joining me on the podcast. Thank you. So fun. I was honored. Thanks for tuning in to Red, White, and Blue this week. I hope this episode inspired every man to embody his unique role as a protector, charged with defending the vulnerable and creating a secure place for others to thrive. You can pick up a copy of The Men We Need and listen to Brant on the radio or his podcast at branthansen.com. This is Chris Sprouse signing off.